0: Our message is titled, Can Man Live by Bread Alone? Uh, An atheist is someone who does not believe there's a God, which includes agnostics and skeptics. Now, if you're a strong atheist, you deny there's a God. If you're an agnostic, you don't know if there's a God. If you're a skeptic, you doubt there's a God. Uh, But no matter what you are, uh, you don't believe there's a God. So atheism, in the broad sense of the term, is what I'm talking about tonight. It includes skeptics, agnostics as well. What's the importance of talking about the existence of God? You say, everybody believes in God, don't they? Well, not really. But everything we believe is based on it. You can't believe the Bible is the word of God unless there's a God. You can't believe Christ is the son of God unless there's a God who can have a son. You can't believe the resurrection is an act of God unless there's a God who can act. Nor salvation is the work of God. Now note, little wonder that the first verse of the Bible starts in the beginning, God. Because everything else in the Bible depends on that. If this verse isn't true, everything else in the Bible is not credible. And if this verse is true, everything in the Bible is credible. So it's perhaps the most crucial and fundamental verse in all of Scripture. Now, there are a bunch of new atheists running around the country. We have the old atheists, Nietzsche and Sartre and Camus and Freud and Fromm and Feuerbach. Don't name your kids F or S, uh, And now we got the new atheists running around. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Victor Stengel, God, The Failed Hypothesis, Michael Onfray, Atheist Manifesto, Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, I don't think I'd want to write a book by that title, Uh, J.L. Schellenberg, The Wisdom of Doubt, Matthew Chapman, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Tim Callahan, Secret Origins of the Bible, Michael Shermer, founder of the Skeptical Society, an editor of the Skeptic Magazine. There's Dawkins, there's Hitchens, uh, there's the Atheist Manifesto, there's Shermer. These guys are causing a lot of waves and are causing a lot of unbelief in our day. Well, how many atheists are there? Well, if you look worldwide, uh, many Buddhists are atheists. Most people don't realize that. Most Buddhists don't believe in God. Uh, Most uh, secular humanists are atheists of one variety or another. All Marxists are atheists. 5% of all Americans claim to be atheists. 30% of all English. 60% of all Swedes. And 80% of all Russians claim to be atheists. In fact, if you added up, in all, all of the religions, because Confucius uh, didn't have a uh, god that he believed in, probably most of the world does not believe in God. none of these sounds strange to us in America because so many of us believe in God, but probably most of the world do not believe in God in fact, there 's a church for atheists. did you know that time magazine ten fifteen o seven a church for atheists is God keeping you from going to church well if god 's keeping you from going to church, and uh, i don 't know if you can see the fine print from where you are but I can't even see it from where I am but this is what it says maybe you're uncomfortable with the idea of God or at least someone else's idea of God yet maybe you yearn for a loving spiritual community where you can be inspired and encouraged as you search for your own truth and meaning this is a church you ask welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Church Actually, I spoke in one of those churches one day. I was sitting in my office in Dallas Seminary. The phone rang, and they said, this is the minister of the local Unitarian Universalist Church, and we, um, we're looking for an evangelical to come and speak. We've had strippers, we've had communists, and we feel we should have a Christian sometime. Would you speak? And I said, well, uh, two conditions. One, there are no strippers there, and two, that I can speak on anything I want. Oh yeah, fine. We're open to everything. So I said, "Okay, I'll come. Uh, I'll speak on Jesus Christ, God, Guru, or ghost." They were hoping for Guru or ghost. Uh, Spoke for forty-five minutes on Jesus, claimed to be God. Jesus proved to be God by fulfilling prophecy, living a sinless, miraculous life, predicting and accomplishing his resurrection from the dead. Are there any questions? Every hand went up. Spent forty-five more minutes. There was only one person in the entire church who believed in some kind of supreme being. Everybody else uh, was an atheist. So we've got even godless churches. Now, the theme of what I have to say to you tonight is this. Atheists say with their lips that they do not believe there is a God, but they show with their lives that there is a God. Emphasis on say and show. What they say is what the Bible says they say. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, you know, I don't feel we've been fair to atheists in the United States. We've got a day for everything. I think we need an atheist national holiday, April 1st. Uh, <laughs> what they. What they show, however, is that there is a God. For when Gentiles, pagans, who do not have the law, by nature do things contained in the law, they show the works of the law written in their hearts. Yeah, they say there's no God, but they show that there is a God. That's my main point. I have three points. What atheists say... that they uh, can live without God, what the Bible says that it can't, and what the evidence shows. First of all, well, can man live by bread alone? Now in context, that verse in Matthew 4.4 4 means it's better to obey God's word than to satisfy human desire. So I want to note that that's the proper context of the verse. The broader application of the verse Humanists can't live by physical food alone. They need spiritual sustenance. And no one can live without God. And it's that sense I'm taking the verse tonight. So atheists say they can. The Bible says they can't. What does the evidence uh, show? As we indicated, uh, there's a high percentage of atheists. And they all say they're living without God. They all say that it can be done. I've had many atheists tell me that themselves. And atheism is on the rise. We've got all of these books and all of these authors. And we've got uh, this happening in our society today. So the question is, uh, is what the Bible says true or is what atheists say true? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. The Bible says they can't live without God because every time they look at the stars, they know there must be a God. Paul said, since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, so they are without excuse, Romans 1, 20. And Jesus said very emphatically, the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, if this is the case, uh, that atheists can't live without God, how can I demonstrate that? Well, I'd like to do it logically Morally, psychologically, and religiously. I'd like to show that atheists cannot live without God logically. They can't live without God morally. They can't live without God psychologically. And they can't do it religiously. Let's start with logic. The world uh, had a beginning. Everything that begins had a cause. Even Julie Andrews knew that. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could, you know. Uh, Everything that begins had a cause. But the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe must have had a cause. That's logical. If those two premises are true, the conclusion is true. Everything that begins had a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Here's Robert Jastrow, an agnostic astronomer, who says, Now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy in his book, God and the Astronomers. That's incredible. While liberal theologians are saying Genesis is myth, agnostic astronomers are saying Genesis is literally true. Something's wrong with this uh, picture, especially with liberal theologians that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Now, you don't find scientists say that very often about very many things. It's a scientifically proven fact. But if it's a scientifically proven fact that this universe had a beginning and it must have had a supernatural cause because the whole natural universe was caused by this, so the cause of the natural world can't be a natural cause. It has to be a supernatural cause. Former atheist uh, Francis Collins put it this way, the Big Bang, that this universe banged into existence out of nothing, the Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces us to the conclusion that nature had a definite beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. Now, I never heard in all the 25 years I debated atheists. I never heard a single atheist ever successfully answer this story. An atheist and a Christian went for a walk in the woods. They came upon a glass ball about eight feet in diameter. The atheist uh, said, I wonder where that came from. Christian said, I don't know, but something must have caused it. They both agreed. Then the Christian said, well, what if the glass ball were uh, 16 feet in diameter? Would it still need a cause? Well, of course, said the atheist, if, if small balls need a cause and bigger balls need causes, too. Well, what, said the Christian, if we make the ball about 8,000 miles in diameter and about 25,000 miles around? Would it still need a cause? The atheist paused. said, mm, yeah, yeah, if little balls need causes and bigger balls need causes and really, really big balls need causes, too. Uh, So, said the Christian, what if we make the ball as big as the whole universe? Does it still need a cause? Of course not, said the atheist. The universe is just there. (laughs) What's wrong with atheism is it's not logical. If little balls need causes and bigger balls need causes, then the biggest ball of all needs a cause too. The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. What caused this universe? Secondly, it's not logical to be an atheist because every complex design has a designer. The world has complex design, therefore the world had a designer. Which is more complex, the one on the left or the one on the right? Everyone knows that the one on the right is infinitely more complex than the one on the left. And everyone knows that the one on the left had to have a designer. Every watch has a watchmaker. Every complex design has a designer. And the universe is a complex design. Therefore, the universe must have had a designer. Atheists cannot live without God logically. Former atheist Alan Sandys said this, the world is too complicated in all its parts to be due to chance alone. I'm convinced that the existence of life with all of its order in each of its organisms is simply too well put together. The more one learns of biochemistry, the more unbelievable it becomes unless there's some kind of organizing principle, an architect for believers. He was the one who studied the 42 galaxies ranging out into space to show that the universe was expanding he was at a conference uh, that we put on between atheists and theists in Dallas a number of years ago, and he came to the conclusion that there must have been a designer of the universe. Richard Dawkins, maybe the most famous atheist in the world, said that one amoeba, upper left, a one-cell animal, has a hundred sets of the encyclopedia inside it in its genetic information—a hundred sets. A thousand sets, rather, not just a thousand volumes, but a thousand sets of an encyclopedia inside a tiny one cell animal. There is no such thing as simple life. You remember uh, the Darwinians say that life went from the simple to complex, from the infantile to the reptile to the crocodile to the, crocodile to the gentile. That's the theory of evolution. From the goo to you via the zoo. Remember that theory? Well, one little amoeba, there is no simple life. You can't go from the simple to complex. You can go from the very, very complex to the very, 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 very complex thousand sets of an encyclopedia. Former atheist Sir Fred Hoyle said this, Biochemical systems are exceedingly complex, so much so that the chance of their being formed through random shuffling is insensibly different from zero. I love that phrase. What are the chances that this universe didn't have a designer? Zero. Insensibly different from zero. What's the exact number? He calculated it. One in 10 to the 40,000th power. Now, one in 10 to the 40,000th power is a really, really big number. It's like more uh, atoms than there are in the whole universe. There aren't 10 to the 40,000th atoms in the whole universe. There are only 10 to the 22nd power stars, and that's how many grains of sand there are in all the seashores in the world. Put it this way, if you go to the doctor and he says you've got cancer, your chances for living are 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power, just drop dead right there. (laughs) Don't, Don't even take your next breath. You don't have a chance. There must be, get this, former atheist says, there must be an intelligence which designed the biochemicals and gave rise to the origin of carbonaceous life. It's a scientific fact that there's a supernatural cause. There must be an intelligent cause. Former atheist, the conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself. Life on earth, says biochemist Michael Behe, life on earth at its most fundamental level in its most critical components is the product of intelligent activity. And he wrote the book that is starting the anti-Darwin revolution, Darwin's Black Box. The great agnostic Immanuel Kant wrote a book 700 pages attacking all of the arguments for the existence of God and when he was all through, he said, two things fill the mind. With ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the oftener and more steadily we reflect on them. The starry heavens above and the moral law within. That's what Psalm 19 and Romans 2 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. There is a moral law and there must be a moral law giver. He said, I can't help but believe in God. And he believed in God in spite of the fact He could find no philosophical justification for it and was a philosophical agnostic. He was a devout believer in God. Other atheists have other names for God. Some call it Nature, capital N, or the cosmos, or the higher self, or the unconscious, but they can't avoid God, whatever name they give to him. Here's the greatest skeptic who ever lived, David Hume. But he spoke of nature as a person, And mind with ultimate rights and secrets, which throws a bar to our presumption and has pointed to a wise course and admonished us to follow it. Nature, physical forces don't do that. Persons do. Minds do. Even Hume couldn't avoid the conclusion that there was the equivalent of an intelligent and wise person out there. Carl Sagan didn't believe in the traditional God, but he believed the cosmos, all capitals, title of his book, is our creator. He believed the cosmos is our savior, and he worshipped the cosmos. That's right. He worshipped the creature rather than the creator, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1. Viktor Frankl, say, all seek God. Man has always stood in intentional relation to transcendence, another term for God— The one that's up there, out there, beyond us. Even if only on an unconscious level. In this sense, all men seek the unconscious God. They may consciously reject him, but they're subconsciously seeking him. Eric Fromm denied a theistic God, but he affirmed a humanistic religion. He used the name God for his object of devotion to the whole of humanity couldn't even avoid using the name God. The most famous atheist in the world was just converted to believe in God. His name is Anthony Flew, and he wrote a book called There Is and Noah's Crossed Out a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Has Changed His Mind. Did he get saved? No. Do you have a religious experience? No. Here's what he said. Nor do I claim to have had any personal experience of God, or any experience that may be called supernatural or miraculous. In short, my discovery of the divine has been a pilgrimage of reason and not of faith. I just carried reason to its logical conclusion. Atheists can't live without God logically. Here's a picture of him, and here's what he said. It's simply inconceivable that any material matrix or field can generate agents who think and act, A force field does not plan or think. So the world of living, conscious, thinking beings has to originate in a source, in a mind. Water rises no higher than its source. The effect cannot be greater than the cause. And if the effect is intelligent, the cause must be intelligent. Man can't live without God logically, and man can't live without God morally Every moral law has a lawgiver. There is an objective moral law. Hence, there is a moral lawgiver. This is called the moral argument for the existence of God. It's the argument that was so persuasive in C.S. Lewis and and many others. It starts with Immanuel Kant. Kant held that there's an absolute moral law. He said we should always treat others as ends, not as means to an end. He said, We should never do what we can't will that all should do. Hence, it is necessary to posit a God to make sense out of our moral duty. If there is a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. Suppose I go to a pharmacist and I say, "Uh, Would you fill this prescription for me? And the pharmacist said, "Uh, Who prescribed it? And I say, Nobody. It's just a prescription. He said, Well, look, every prescription has a prescriber. That's absurd. And she'd be right, wouldn't she? Because you can't have a moral prescription without a moral prescriber. You can't have a law without a lawgiver or legislation without a legislator. And there is a moral law. How do we know there is a moral law? Well, atheists uh, have come to that conclusion. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Then I started to ask myself, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. You can't know that line's crooked unless you know what a straight line is like. How can I know the universe is crooked? How can I know there's something wrong somewhere? Ravi Zacharias in his Harvard Veritas Forum had a beautiful and tactful way of dealing with the moral relativists who say there are no moral absolutes, everything's relative, and one lady was... was uh, carrying on that theme, and he said, man, let me ask you a question. Let me get to the root of the problem here. Is there anything wrong anywhere? Is there anything wrong anywhere? See, if the atheist admits that there's anything wrong anywhere, you can say, what's your standard? How do you know it's wrong? How do you know that's an unjust activity if you don't know what just is? Because unjust means not just. And you couldn't know it was unjust unless you knew what was Just. So the moral law, which we all presuppose, did you ever hear an atheist who didn't believe it was morally wrong to rob him of his freedom? That it was morally wrong to be intolerant, to be bigoted? Uh, No, they all have moral principles, but where did they get them from? You can't have a prescription without a prescriber. Former atheist Francis Collins, now this man is head of the Genome Project, the most prestigious uh, prestigious uh, project ever undertaken uh, by scientists to map the whole human genome. He said, after 28 years as a believer, the moral law still stands out for me as the strongest signpost to God. More than that, it points to a God who cares about human beings and a God who is infinitely good and holy. So we know there's a, supreme, a supernatural cause out there. We know the cause is moral because we wouldn't know the world was unjust unless there was a standard of justice. And we know that uh, this being out there is infinitely good and holy. Moral principles. We have all kinds of them. Respect human beings, respect human freedom, uh, reject racism and bigotry, be tolerant to other people, promote peace and justice. I don't know unbelievers or atheists who don't believe in most, if not all, of these principles. But where do you get a moral law without a moral law giver? Jay Budzicewski, if you can pronounce his name, you can pass the course uh, if you can spell it, you get an A. Uh, B-U-D-Z-I-S-Z-E-W-S-K-I. He was an atheist. He was top-of-the-line atheist, Nietzschean nihilistic atheist. That's top-of-the-line. You remember Nietzsche? The guy said, God is dead, uh, sign Nietzsche. Somebody wrote under it, Nietzsche is dead, sign God. Remember him? <laughs> Well, that's the kind he was. He was a Nietzschean atheist teaching at the University of Texas. He was a tenured professor, and he came to this conclusion. What actually led me back to God was a growing intuition that my condition was objectively evil. What actually led me back is looking around the world and seeing the evil, and looking into my own life and seeing the evil. But evil is a deficiency in good. There's no such thing as an evil substance and evil in itself. So if my condition really was evil, there had to be some good of which my condition was the ruination. I had been so wrong for so long, so profoundly, that it seemed that almost anything might be true, even the faith that I had abandoned. And he turned back to God and became a believer, an articulate defender of the Christian faith. Man can't live without God logically, and he can't live without God morally. And he can't live without God psychologically. Sigmund Freud, father of modern uh, psychoanalysis, wrote a book that all atheists know about, The Future of an Illusion. And most atheists hold this view, that belief in God is just an illusion. It's a childhood neurosis. We just don't grow out of our childhood dependence on a father. We all want a heavenly Linus blanket, and a cosmic comforter. He said, what is characteristic of illusions is that they are derived from human wishes. I wish for a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. But there aren't any. As for religious doctrines, all of them are illusions and insusceptible of proof. There is no evidence that there's a God. And there's evidence that there isn't a God because that's the way people wish it to be. That's Freud's argument. Now I would like to turn Freud on Freud. And I'd like to argue that everyone who really needs God uh, and what we really need really exists, therefore God really exists. A note, everyone doesn't get everything they want. I think Freud misses the point. Of course, just because you want it doesn't mean it's there. Pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And everyone doesn't get everything they need. People die of thirst and hunger. They need water and they need food. What I'm arguing is this, what we really need really exists. That is, if we really need food, there's really food somewhere, even if I die of starvation. If we really need water, there's really water somewhere. Again, Francis Collins, why would such a universal and uniquely human hunger for God exist if we're not connected to some opportunity for fulfillment? Doesn't make any sense. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. What we really need really exists. And we really need food, and we really need water, and we really need God. Now my hobby, collecting quotes from great atheists. And I'll show you that atheists themselves have admitted that they really need God, and I get so encouraged when I read them. I needed God, says Jean-Paul Sartre. I reached out for religion. I longed for it. It was the remedy. Had it been denied me, I would have invented it myself. In his autobiography, titled Words. Here's one of the top atheists of the 60s and 70s, existentialists, who led so many people, who wrote a book called nausea That's what he thought of life. He wrote wrote a play called No Exit. He wrote uh, another book called Being in Nothingness. Being in Nothingness, that's all there is in this world. And all of life, he said, is an empty bubble on the sea of nothingness. Now, an empty bubble on the sea of nothingness, that's kind of like a a balloon without the skin on it. Uh, Nothing, you know. Or, Harry Truman once called one of his political opponents, that guy's nothing but a rimless zero. That's nothing, a rimless zero. So, here Sartre is saying, all of life is empty, there's nothing there whatsoever. Sigmund Freud said, admitted, it would be nice if there were a God. He admitted a sense of man's insignificance or impotence in the face of the universe a feeling of absolute dependence, which Schleiermacher called religion, a feeling of your finitude in the light of the infinite, your dependence in the light of an independent. And he refers, quote, to our God, Logos, or reason. So even Freud had his own God. But here's a guy, Paul Witz, taught at New York University, who turned Freud on Freud. And he wrote a book called Faith of the Fatherless. And in this book... He shows nowhere did Freud publish a psychoanalysis of belief in God based on clinical evidence provided by believing patients. Instead, there is now much research showing that a religious life is associated with greater physical health and psychological well-being. If you're messed up psychologically, come to Jesus. Uh, He will unscrew you. (laughs) Uh, if if your life is messed up physically, come to God, he can heal you. It's a, it's a proven fact that belief in God, to say nothing of true Christian uh, belief and acceptance of Christ is better for your mental and physical health. Now, what Freud did is he said, uh, I will tell you that all these people who are religious have an illusion, but he never, ever did a study and provided any evidence for it. The only evidence he had was looking at atheists. Now, that's kind of like saying, I'm going to do a study on happy marriages, and I'm only going to talk to divorced people. You, don't, you won't find out. Uh, my grandson got married uh, not too long ago, and his counselor asked him to do the wisest thing I've ever heard. Here are 20 questions. Go and find uh, some couples who've been married for 50 years and ask them these 20 questions. Sadly, he couldn't find one. We had been married 49 and a half years at the time. We've now been married 54 years, and so he had to use us. Uh, You don't determine whether there's such a thing as a happy marriage by talking to divorcees. You talk to people who've been happily married for 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. Freud didn't do the right research. Freud did the wrong research. Furthermore, Freud got it totally wrong. We don't create the father. The atheist kills the father. We don't create a father image the atheist kills the father image. And Paul Vitz did a study in this book, Faith of the Fatherless, on all the great atheists. And guess what he discovered? They all either had no father or no functional father in their life. And they were projecting on God. They were killing the father, capital F, because they didn't have a father, small uh, f. Just the opposite of what Freud said. Nietzsche admitted it. He said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murders, comfort ourselves? Now here's the greatest atheist of all time admitting that he killed God. And Nietzsche is one of the persons in Paul Witt's book, and guess what? Nietzsche's father died when he was very young, and he was reared by about four Uh, legalistic, authoritarian, German women cramming religion down his throat. That's enough to make anybody an atheist. (laughs) He said, I hold up before myself the images of Dante and Spinoza, who were better at accepting a lot of solitude. Why? They had a belief in God. Uh, Of course, their way of thinking compared to mine was one which made solitude bearable. He's admitting his atheism is unbearable. And in the end, for all those who somehow still had a God for company, my life now consists in the wish that it might be otherwise. I wish I weren't an atheist. I wish I had a God who could comfort me. And that somebody might make my truths appear incredible to me. What a cry from an atheist's heart. And then he wrote a poem to the unknown God. Listen to this for an atheist. Thou lightning-shrouded one, unknown one, speak. What wilt thou, unknown God, do come back with all thy tortures to the last of all that are lonely? Oh, come back, and my heart's final flame flares up for thee. Oh, come back, my unknown God, my pain, my last happiness. He's crying out for God, the greatest... Atheist who ever lived. David Hume couldn't live his skepticism. He couldn't live it. He said, most fortunately, it happens that since reason is incapable of dispelling these clouds of doubt, nature herself suffices to that purpose and cures me of the philosophical melancholy and delirium. My skepticism drives me to melancholy and delirium And reason can't help me, so I turn to nature. He turns to a God substitute, something that God made. And here's what he said. Here's how I get my happiness. I dine. I play a game of backgammon. I converse. And when after three or four hours amusement, I would return to these skeptical speculations, they appear so cold and strained and ridiculous that I cannot find it in my heart to enter into them any farther. This is why I read atheists for devotion. They can't live without God. They can't live without God. Albert Camus, famous French atheist. Notice something else about these atheists. They're all unhappy, and they all smoke. Yeah. For anyone who is alone, without God, and without a master, the weighted days is dreadful. Now, does that sound like a happy life? For anyone who's alone, anyone who doesn't have a God, the weight of days is dreadful. Day after day after day is dreadful. Last, they can't live without God religiously. Feuerbach, one of the top atheists of all time, said: God is a need of the intelligence, a necessary thought, the highest degree of thinking power. The highest degree of thought that you can come to is to come to the thought of God. Now, there isn't a God, but he's the necessary thought anyway, the essence of Christianity, chapter 1. Here's another atheist, Auguste Comte. He invented sociology, coined the term. He set up a humanist religion. He installed himself as the high priest of it. He had a religious calendar in holy days, and he venerated great thinkers as saints they got to make their own religion, even. Now, the British tend to be a little more honest than the uh, Americans on things like uh, this. And uh, I'll give you a quote from uh, the British on the moment. But here's John Dewey, the father of American uh, humanistic education. He wanted to teach religion. Here are all the elements of a religious faith that shall not be confined to sect, class, or race. Such a faith has always been implicitly the common faith of mankind. It remains to make it explicit and militant. That he said in 1934, the very year after he signed a humanist manifesto, saying there is no creator, no creation, no God-given moral absolute. He said, now let's take this religion, humanism, and teach it in our public schools. And he succeeded. By 30 years later, the Supreme Court, Torcaso case in 1961, ruled that uh, you don't have to believe in God to be religious. Paul Tillich was asked to testify before the Supreme Court in that case. Then he said, religion is ultimate concern or ultimate commitment. Even atheists, he said, have an ultimate concern because a human being deprived completely of a center would cease to be a human being. What if you don't have something that transcends you, some center of your life, something that can direct you? You're not going to be happy. You'd cease to be a human being. What is that but God? Huxley didn't believe in God, but he wrote a book titled Religion Without Revelation. That's kind of like romance without a spouse. He had a chapter titled Evolutionary Humanism as a Developed Religion and spoke of spiritual experiences with supreme value. Atheists. Huxley spoke of the possibility of enjoying experiences of transcendent rapture, physical or mystical, aesthetic or religious, of attaining inner harmony and peace, which puts a man above the cares and worries of daily life. He, too, needed a transcendent spiritual experience, which is just a surrogate for God. Karl Marx had an ultimate. He was a strong atheist, but he desired an earthly utopia, that transcends the present. He made an ultimate commitment to this end. In fact, I visited his grave outside of London several years ago. I was working behind the Iron Curtain, 1978, with, uh, the, um, with Campus Crusade in Poland. And we went over to the cemetery, and uh, there was his big bust in the cemetery. And I got on the airplane to come back to America. They handed me Time magazine. Here's what it said. On the cover. God is dead, Marx is dead, and I'm not feeling too well either. Man can't live without God. Bertrand Russell, who wrote the book Why I Am Not a Christian that has led so many people astray, said this. Even when one feels nearest to other people, something in one seems obstinately to belong to God. Hold the phone. What did you say? Oh, he caught himself. At least that's how I would express it if I thought there was a God. I mean, he really believed there was something that obstinately belonged to God. It's odd, isn't it? I care passionately for this world and many things and people in it. And yet, what is it all? There must be something more important one feels, but I don't believe there is. There is he realized that there must be something important because you can't just care so passionately about chemicals or molecules. Why can't you just falling in love? What is there about it? I was talking uh, to an atheist. I spoke some time ago at uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle, and some of the kids there invited me to come to Hunter College and and speak, and there was a young atheist there, and and he was very open, and he was very responsive to the uh, lecture and and uh, he said his mother just died a month ago, and he, was, uh, he missed her a, a lot. And then he was going on to tell me about how he believed the universe was just matter in motion, a bunch of molecules. And I said, do you think your mother was just a bunch of molecules? He looked at me. I said, why is it that you miss your mother? Why is it that you cried? Why is it that you care? You don't cry about missing some uh, plenty more molecules around, you know, plenty more atoms around. He never thought of it. I really believe that young man is going to come to Christ because that struck him as a very important thing in his life. Carl Sagan worshipped the cosmos. Our ancestors worshipped the sun, and they were far from ignorant. If we must worship a power greater than ourselves, does it not make sense to revere the sun and the stars? Did you know that Sagan was a star worshiper, a cosmos? A cosmos worshiper? Because he couldn't avoid having a God. Atheist Walter Kaufman, Harvard University, said, religion is rooted in man's aspiration to transcend himself. Whether he worships idols or strives to perfect himself, get this, man is a God-intoxicated ape. That's pretty good for an atheist. Man is a God-intoxicated ape. Well, I want to know who intoxicated them. And why are we all intoxicated? If there isn't a God. Albert Camus said, Despite the fact that there is no God, at least the church must be built. Why build the house of God if there is no God? Despite the fact there is no God, at least the church must be built. Humanist Eric Fromm said, Indeed, man does not live by bread alone. He's quoting the Bible. Jesus, Matthew 4. He has only the choice of better or worse forms of religion. You can get the true God or you can get a false God, but you can't live without God. Will Durant and his son, I survived morally because I retained the moral code that was taught me along with the religion while I discarded the religion. That's typical of the previous generation. Our grandparents believed in God and morality. The parents believed in morality, but not God. And the children, listen to what he says. A disregarded religion. You and I are living on a shadow, but what will happen to our children? They are living on the shadow of a shadow. That's our generation, living on a shadow of a shadow. Because we've given up the morality, as well as the religion, as well as the God, the moral lawgiver who makes the moral law possible. You know what's wrong with humanism? This was written by a humanist in the British Humanist Journal. Charges that humanism is almost clinically detached from life. He recommends they develop a humanist Bible, humanist hymnal, Ten Commandments for humanists, even confessional practices. In addition, the use of hypnotic techniques, music, and other psychological devices during the humanist service would give the audience that deep spiritual experience, and they would emerge refreshed and inspired in their humanist faith. Well, I wrote a few songs for them. Plato, lover of my soul. No one ever cared for me like Socrates. And my hope is built on nothing less than jean Paul Sartre and nothingness. I'm sure I could think of a few more songs for them if, if it was necessary. Listen to what atheists say about atheism. It's a summary of what we just been through. Will Durant said, it's a shadow of a shadow. Nietzsche said, it's not bearable. Huxley said, it's intolerable. Camus said, it's dreadful. Sartre said, it's cruel. Hume said, it leads to delirium. The main point is, Atheists say with their lips there is no God, but they show with their lives that there is a God. Alternatives for an atheist. They can live inconsistently. They can live in futility. They can drive themselves to insanity. They can commit suicide or then get saved. Jackson Pollock was inconsistent because he chose not to live randomly. He said, the universe is just random. We're just a lucky shot. But his hobby was mushrooms, and you don't approach uh, wild mushrooms randomly or you'll be dead shortly. Albert Camus said, life is futile and dreadful. John Cage used to create music by flipping a coin for what would be the next note. That drove him crazy. It would drive anybody crazy listening to the music, too. And Jean-Paul Sartre was converted. That's right. Here's the man who, when he was a kid, was burning a hole in a rug. And God convicted him of his sin. And he said, anyone so unkind as to intrude into a child's machination isn't worthy to believe in. So he gave up believing in God. But he said, I had all the more difficulty getting rid of the Holy Spirit. He installed himself in the back of my head. But I collared the Holy Ghost in the cellar, and I threw him out. Atheism is a cruel and long-range affair. I think I've carried it through. I lost my illusion. That's what he said in his autobiography. But before he died, this is what he said in the National Review and in a French journal, and even his mistress uh, admitted it. I do not feel that I am a product of chance, a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who was expected, prepared, prefigured, in short, a being whom only a creator could put here. I knew two missionaries who lived near him in France, and, and told him many, many times how, how deeply he regretted deceiving so many people and leading so many people astray. And he had a minister who visited him every week before he died. We can't get rid of God. Those who deny God with the top of their minds nevertheless cannot avoid him in the bottom of their hearts. Humanist Eric Fromm said, The need for an object of devotion is deeply rooted in the conditions of human existence. Nothing, nothing, says atheist Camus, can discourage the appetite for divinity in the heart of man. Now, what was our premise? Whatever you really need, water, food, or God, really exists somewhere. God is a real need of our hearts. We who are believers admit it, and even the unbelievers admit it. St. Augustine put it this way. Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Jesus said it in these words. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Bread is not enough. Sign God. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Norman Geisler. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Norman's ministry by visiting normangeisler.com.